Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the particulars of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories on the new Toyota Yaris, which aims to be class-leading, particularly in safety and other features, but it comes at a price. And we have some interviews. Terry Thompson gives us an update on the historic classic event and the 70th anniversary of a great Jaguar. Michael Pahota, the General Manager for Suzuki in Australia, gives us some great background to what they are doing to get ahead in this difficult market. And we have some of the feedback we've had from our Facebook page, Overdrive City. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And as I say, our Facebook page is Overdrive City. So let's get the program rolling. First, the news. With great fanfare, Toyota has introduced its new Yaris in the light car class. It's slightly shorter and longer than the previous model. They are powered by a new three-cylinder engine, which is not tiny at 1.5 litre capacity. There's improved fuel efficiency, including a hybrid option that is rated at just 3.3 litres per 100 kilometres. Safety features are really quite stunning. There's automatic emergency braking, eight airbags, and a system to detect turning traffic, pedestrians, and in the daytime, cyclists. Assistant features include adaptive cruise control as standard in all models. Not even the new Audi A4 and A5 models have that. But it comes at a price. The base model is $22,130 plus on-road costs, and that's a manual. That's only some $1,700 below an entry-level Corolla. The CVT Automatic is a reasonable $1,500 extra. Top of the line, ZR Hybrid CVT, $32,100 plus on-road costs. Toyota has packed their new Yaris little car with considerable prevention and protection features in their quest to have the safest car in the segment. The big sales performers have been the lower-priced, lower-spec cars, such as the MG and the Suzuki Bellino. Toyota is betting on safety and resale value. Part of their thinking is that when you come to sell the car, it will still have a lot of equipment that everyone will then expect. Eight airbags, including a first-in-class centre airbag between the front occupants to prevent body and head clashes in an accident. Autonomous emergency braking, active cruise control, automatic high beam, lane departure assist, detecting danger of turning vehicles or pedestrians and detecting speed signs, to name just some. Blind spot detection is only available on the top model, but there's a lot to help keep you safe. Toyota's new model of its little car, the Yaris, now comes with three-cylinder engines. A number of manufacturers have produced three-cylinder, one-litre turbocharged engines. Some research has shown that typically these engines have real fuel consumption figures that are significantly higher than the rated figure from the laboratory. Toyota's engine is bigger, 1.5 litres, but not turboed. 
The engine has 88 kilowatts, a gain of 10%, and 2.7% more torque. It is rated at 5.4 litres per 100 kilometres for the manual, and even better, 4.9 litres per 100k for the CVT automatic. The hybrid option, which is not available in the base model, uses a slightly detuned engine plus the electric motor to give a similar total power output. Fuel consumption is rated at just 3.3 litres per 100 kilometres. Hybrid powertrains now account for 24% of all new Toyota sales in Australia. One of our favourite practical vehicles, especially if you have a large family, is the Kia Carnival. It already dominates its segment in Australia with nearly 60% of all people mover sales. Now Kia has just shown the world its fourth generation model. It's better looking and has some bling features. On the outside it has a longer nose to look less like a van and you can get up to 19 inch wheels. The premium relaxation seat for second row occupants has adjustable back, arm and leg rests. There is now a high-tech twin digital display providing a panorama of information on a 12.3-inch digital driver instrument cluster and a 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment and navigation system under a single seamless piece of glass. And you can option up to a 216-kilowatt V6 engine. Australian sales are planned to commence in the fourth quarter this year. According to research by Bacodi, Malaysia has the cheapest petrol at 53 cents a litre in our currency. In Australia it's $1.26 and the dearest was Hong Kong at $3.10. But cheap petrol means little if you have poor wages. The ratio of average wage to petrol price sees Australia on top in our region. Compared to the whole world, however, it is the Persian Gulf countries where people are in the best position to buy petrol. The Picodi research is not clear over what period they calculated the numbers, but they say an average Australian wage can buy 4,288 litres of petrol. Saudi Arabia, it is 8,200. And in last place, Cuba, it's just 28 litres. Cuba is well below countries such as Zambia, where 219 litres can be purchased on an average wage. And that has been the news. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, each year in Sydney, there has been a major event of getting together of many, many historic car clubs or car clubs in general. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has had its impact there as well. But of course, that doesn't stop us talking about the history and the passion for some of these glorious old vehicles. Let's touch on those two subjects. Terry Thompson has dedicated his life to helping us come together with our wonderful classic cars. Good day, Terry. Hi, how are you, David? I'm very well, thank you. The classic, now known as the Shannon's Classic, will it be held this year, 2020? No, unfortunately, we just can't see that 5,000-odd people with a couple of thousand cars all mingling together, and uh, unfortunately... All in the older age group, if that's a nice way of putting it, um, we shouldn't be getting them together and having them wandering around looking at all this stuff. So uh, we've made the decision to uh, postpone it until next year, which is uh, sad. When did it start? 1964 was the first one. 
at the old Warwick Farm. Well, Warwick Farm racetrack is still there, but the car racing part of the racetrack um, is not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there were not only there were only about six or seven clubs who started off the Council of Motor Clubs way back in 1963, and they decided that they'd have a rally, as they called it then, and they all got together and hired the infield, uh, the pit area as we would have known it, um, and all sat around and looked at one another's cars and enjoyed one another's company. And it's grown and grown and grown from there. There must be thousands of car clubs. There are, well, yes, I mean, the RMS has, oh, sorry, Transport for New South Wales, now has on its list of approved clubs that can issue historic conditional registration over a 1,000 clubs in New South Wales alone. So they just grow and grow and grow. Now, you're the president of the CMC. What's CMC? Make sure I've got that right. Council of Motor Clubs used to be the Council of Veteran Vintage and Thoroughbred Motor Clubs when it first began, and that was a real mouthful. So um, many, many years ago, I suggested to people we might simplify it and change that name, and they all agreed, which stunned me as well. I'm a member of the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management, AITPM. I have suggested that less of a mouthful may be appropriate But we can't get all together, but we can still reminisce a little. There's a significant anniversary for Jaguars this year. What is it? Yes, well, the Mark 7 um, is up to 70 years old and uh, quite a few others. But the the Mark 7 Jag is um, really a significant vehicle. This is this glorious big saloon, isn't it? That's right. Jaguar became known for fast cars with the C-type and D-type and then the E-type. And then, of course, we see those Mark IIs on a lot of British detective and police shows. But this was a big saloon, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. The Mark II changed Jaguar's um, clientele, I suppose, quite a bit because they became a little bit more affordable, but they were smaller and um, easier to um, drive and use, so a lot of people went. When I was first started working, I had to go down to Melbourne for a business trip, but my colleague was down there, whom I have conversed with many years about Jaguars. He had a mate there, and his mate had a Mark 7, and we went around the block in it. It needed sort of some restoration work. It was markedly absent in the car at the moment was a full exhaust system and I think there was a certain absence of registration as well I didn't go into that in great detail but I sat in the back and I felt like King Farouk yes you should be waving your hand sideways like um, (laughs) my husband and oh no no that's right (laughs) my memories of the Mark 7 was when I was racing uh, my little VW Beetle in Group NA historic touring cars, um, Michael Sidgen Cox from the Jaguar Club had a Mark 7, which was affectionately known as the White Whale. And uh, it had a serious problem in that we weren't allowed limited slip diffs. And uh, he got some serious horsepower out of the XK engine, which wasn't hard to do. However, putting it to the ground out of corners was very, very difficult. And I still remember him at Eastern Creek, as it was then, now Sydney Motorsport Park, barbecuing the inside rear out of the corners to the extent where they black flagged him because they thought the car was on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So he wasn't impressed. (laughs) 
a white whale. It was in the nicest way. It was a very big car with a long nose. I think in the back you could fold down and get your glass out to have a scotch with. Yeah. I think it had that sort, well, some of the models had that sort of thing. Did it sell well? I understood it did, yes, yes. Um, but uh, it was certainly out of my family's league as far as the uh, the cost was concerned, but um, there, were, there, were, there are plenty of them around. I believe when it went to America, they sold $30 million in value in the first three months. Wow. Enormous success. Mm. It was a powerful engine. In, in fact, I think... In some people consider it competing very much with Bentley. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. So it was that Grand Tourer with a, a great engine and a big car, but one of which you could zing through the countryside on the way to your estate. Uh, yes. I think it also won a rally, didn't it? It won the Monte Carlo. 1956, I think, Monte Carlo rally, yeah. How would you do that? Oh, some of those slippery, icy roads, it would have been, yes, he would have been a very brave driver or an even braver navigator, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Terry, that's lovely stuff. Uh, Keep going with the history. We need it and we appreciate all your effort. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. Talk to you again. And that's Terry Thompson. He is the president of the CMC and also does more specific work in the New South Wales group. Unfortunately, we don't have the Classic, now known as the Shannon's Classic, here in Sydney for 2020, but I'm sure they will keep fighting on. You're listening to Overdrive. Feedback time, and we've posted a few videos recently on our YouTube page. Just look up Driven Media. The latest is a road test of the Skoda Kodiak. It's a large SUV with some natty features, including a small plastic shield that comes out and protects your door edge and the person parking beside you if you should open too widely. We also have a video of Chris's restoration of a Mark I Jaguar, including pictures of his daughter riding in it to her wedding. On the website drivenmedia.com.au, I've loaded up an interview with John Mann, an illustrious name in motor racing in Australia. He chats about his first car, an open wheeler he made himself, how, as a young mechanic, he made a mistake that cost a world champion bike rider the race. He had to escape and hide out for a while, when the champion went berserk in the pits. And finally, his friendship with motorbike rider Barry Sheen and John's own fight with cancer. And finally, on our Facebook page, do mag wheels add or distract from a classic motor car? I saw a picture of a Volkswagen Combi, which had a set of old-style mag wheels. Now, our resident artist, Dean, who owns a combi camper like this one, noted the following. A nice old combi with a fresh paint job. The pop-top looks a bit weathered, but probably still does the job, and it has a good patina. Wheels are such a personal thing, and they look good, but are an uncommon style. Dean continues. Plain chrome hubcaps always look good on combis. Now, Dean knows, of course, in driving a combi, that you do have an impact on the drivers around you. He continues, A lot of fellow motorists, particularly those who drive up hills, don't like combis, 
So what worries me most about this one is the bullet hole in the driver's door. I didn't notice it at first, but obviously Dean, with his experience, looks out for these sorts of things. And Chris also added that those wheels add at least another 10 miles per hour to the bus. And that's our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. You're listening to Overdrive. We've been looking at a number of models from Suzuki, but what about the overall brand? We've been looking at a number of models from Suzuki, but what about the overall brand in these tough times? What are the hurdles and what are the things that are working? Suzuki's General Manager for Automobiles, Michael Pahota, joins us on the line now. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Not a problem. How are you coping with COVID-19? Look, as best as we all can, I guess. We are based in Victoria as a business, so it's had an impact on our operation as a whole, um, especially at the moment during um, the highest impact to be in Victoria. Um, we're at stage three restrictions here, so we're all working from home. We've been working from home since uh, the beginning of April, I should say end of March, really. Um, so that hasn't really changed also much, but uh, things are getting worse in Victoria. So it is impacting the Victorian market as such in regards to the level of inquiry at dealerships um, and uh, definitely the order ride. But in saying that, though, we've, we've been um, fairly consistent uh, in our performance in Victoria. And Australia-wide, as a matter of fact, uh, in July, as we're speaking now in July, it has been quite a good month, surprisingly, uh, based on the seasonality normally having a dip after June. It has come back a little bit from the disasters of what May and so on. Uh, but what about from the, the whole supply side? Has there been any disruption to you actually getting vehicles to sell? Initially in April, we didn't have necessarily much of an impact in regards to the availability based on the April run rate that we started seeing as a direct impact of COVID-19. But obviously, from a global perspective, production did slow down and some factories had to close up, being that we have factories where we uh, manufacture Vitara and S-Cross in Hungary. We manufacture Bellino in India and then Ignis Swift and Swift Sport in Japan. Now, all three of those destinations, based on the models that we represent for Suzuki in Australia, those three destinations had closures at different times, all about almost the same kind of period, but uh, within a month apart from each other. That impacted significantly when the run rate came back up in regards to that level of inquiry. There was a bit of a resurgence in market in May, as you know, and in June, we had a very good month where there was a high level of inquiry and order right in our dealerships. So consideration, looking at that impact of that slowdown in production, we did have an overall impact that will probably affect our supply over the next coming months. But we have already put in place countermeasures to come. You've put out a few new models, the Ignis in May and the the Swift in June. Is it a tough time to try and leverage up with new models? Well, this year there there, there are actually three introductions of Series 2 models, which is the next phase of the digital production line, one of which was the Ignis, as you mentioned, The original date of release was in May, but we ended up actually moving that to June based on uh, the arrival time of the vehicles and together with Swift Sport in June as well. So Ignis launched at the beginning of June and Swift Sport launched mid-June. 
in the Series 2 form. And then we had Swift, which was scheduled for a July-August launch, but now will be launched in September this year. So that they directly had an impact based on those factory closures in Japan. And is it hard to get the message out there in a time when people are thinking about many other things? Yes and no, David. I mean, we our messaging is a lot different to what you are seeing as the general messaging most brands, not only in the automotive industry, um, are actually sharing at the moment. A lot of people are talking about being in this together and, and really directly quoting what the current situation is in regards to the pandemic and so forth. And look, the general public has heard a great deal about this. And there was a point, obviously, in June where doing a little bit of research around the fact a lot of people were kind of sick and tired of hearing about it. So we decided to actually pre-June come up with a different concept, which worked in our favour, which was not necessarily talking about the issues that are affecting or impacting us, but more so uh, the resolution around it. We created a campaign, actually, which was quite clever, called Suzuki Rooms, that worked very well for us in regards to that level of engagement and had a lot of customers actually coming through on the platforms where we advertise that campaign, which was mainly from a digital perspective and some, um, some video play. And Suzuki Rooms was about talking about Suzuki now focusing on architecture, meaning that a Suzuki vehicle is now an extension of your home which a lot of people were looking for more room at the time, obviously being trapped in the house. So it's something that we've actually um, reintroduced into the market now based on the current scenario in Victoria and taken quite lightly by the general public in regards to us having a bit of fun and definitely talking to our brand being for fun's sake as our brand platform. The Bellino we've been driving. Now, you moved out of, for the top of the GLX model, the three-cylinder turbo. I'm not a great fan of them. They can be good and, and that, but sometimes you've got to work them rather hard. You're back to the more traditional, normally aspirated four-cylinder. What was the prompting for that decision? I made that decision, David, based on the fact that the turbo was a fantastic car. It was an excellent engine for that specific size of vehicle as well. That three-cylinder turbo just hummed very well. And it was, to a certain extent, popular, but the price range of that vehicle came in at and it wasn't able to be reduced any further. It had a lot of competition in the larger size car, so you're talking about you know, the small size segment that it went up against, and those vehicles did, at that price range, have a little bit more to offer as a vehicle. So it kind of found itself in a position where it just wasn't exactly the best value product, and it's something that we've always taken pride in in regards to our product range being a fantastic value proposition. So we looked at the opportunities of what we can offer in the GLX guys, and we had the opportunity to actually introduce the 1.4 litre. Also in that guys, we actually brought the vehicle down below $20,000 drive away price point when we first introduced it. So automatically we saw an increase in sales and the gap wasn't so far from BL to the GLX, which meant that that natural kind of step up if someone wanted the extra bells and whistles definitely wasn't a difficult decision to make. Do many people come in at the base level with the Bellino, the GL, or do they, and the manual, or do, do most go up into automatic and how many into GLX? The GL manual represents about 5% of our total sales. The GL also represents approximately 70% of our sales and the GLX about 20%. It's down at that very price sensitive part of the market, isn't it? Yes, it is. And look, and it's, it's, 
been something that's worked quite well for us. We introduced the series to late in 2019, and in of the introduction, we created a very good campaign, in my opinion, which was the Das Talking campaign, also in our for fun sake kind of fashion, which worked really, really well for us in terms of creating that awareness for the series two when it was released. And, uh, and the opportunity then started rising there with the additional inquiry that we were receiving on the car. It was very popular. Gee Auto uh, specifically was that perfect price point with the perfect amount of features that made it the best, best value proposition in the light segment at the time, which we started seeing huge growth in. And now the opportunity ahead, particularly with that model as well, subject obviously to supply, which has stricken many other brands other than ours in that segment as well, and the opportunity, obviously, with some of the other competitors moving away from that segment or introducing higher spec, higher level models instead of having an entry model, gives us an opportunity as well um, as one of the only Japanese manufacturers to offer a Suzuki at that kind of price point. So it, it does present really good value for money. And I believe we've got a good opportunity to take a larger share of that uh, light segment at the moment, especially coupled with Swift and the return of the Swift series two in December. Some car companies almost have given up in that segment, isn't it? Uh, sedans, it's a tough market. It's uh, that SUVs are dominating. Some companies have really given up. You're going strong. Uh, the Bellino is a hatchback, so it, it only, only offered in the hatchback form. But in saying that, though, some do have some have given up in that space and light segment, which, which I find quite bizarre based on the fact that there's still, you know, two to 300,000 customers a year still purchasing in that segment, especially times like there are now where people are moving away from even catching public transport and starting to look toward a cheap, affordable vehicle to get them from A to B or from work or, or what have you. And we seem to be the first one on the top of the list, which I'm very happy with. The right place at the right time. That's right. Will Suzuki embrace electric vehicles and other technologies? Um, from a global perspective, we are doing, or currently we are uh, researching the opportunities and possibilities. Um, I think you can see with our global lines with Toyota, um, there have been announcements over the last couple of years in regards to joint research and development around electrification, meaning the introduction to other countries, and potentially ours in the future as well. It just depends on what the future may hold. But we do have hybrid technology that we've had for quite some time um, from a global perspective. It's just been introduced into the European market now as well on our products being Swift, Vitara, S-Cross and Ignis. And there will be an opportunity in future potentially to have those products introduced into Australia, which I'm currently working closely with Japan on in regards to when the best time, the most feasible time that such an introduction to happen. You're passionate to have them? The, would you like to get them quickly? Um, look, I'd love to get as much product as I can get my hands on, um, realistically, David, but at the same time, it's got to be the right timing for everything. I mean, the market, there is an opportunity now, definitely for hybrid sales. We've seen that with Toyota's success, definitely with the RAV4, Camry and Corolla, and it's something that uh, we have been monitoring for quite some time. We do have a case, definitely, to introduce hybrid technology into Australia that will be successful, especially at the fact that we have products in hybrid technology that still don't cost an arm and a leg. The 
the increase in the premium to purchase a hybrid car, say, for example, the Swift guys, wouldn't be far different to purchasing a naturally aspirated vehicle. So there's going to be some huge value propositions, good value propositions, I should say, for consumers in those segments that we compete in. So realistically speaking, David, I think you know the time time is never better, but at the same time, we have to make the right business decisions operationally to make sure that we invest in the right product and have the right level of investment that we can back that product um, within the market and our current return on that investment at the moment. Yeah, to be able to take it through dealers and cope with it. It's not necessary to be first on the market in a business that's really got to have a very long term. That's right. I couldn't agree more. Michael, that's been lovely. I've taken a lot of your time, but I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Not a problem at all. Thank you, David. And that was Michael Pahota, who is the General Manager of Automobiles for Suzuki here in Australia, talking about the wide range of subjects and coping with COVID-19 and other things. And... And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Terry Thompson, Michael Pahota and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.